0: Please have your attention. Daniel, <laughs> greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast. Um, I am back from Hawaii. Excuse me, it's been that kind of day, um, and I am still a little jet lagged and frazzled. It was. Um, I left Hawaii at 2 p.m. Hawaii time, got to L.A. around 9.30, had a layover there, nothing was open, um, and then had a red eye from L.A. to D.C. leaving at midnight that got me in around, I don't know, 8 or something like that. And then no chance to sleep all day yesterday. And then this morning I had to get up super early to do NPR. Um, And then I had to make the pasta sauce. But, you know, the helicopters were following me everywhere I went, even when I dropped off the guns. So I'm a little um, jangly. And I apologize to people about it. Also, this was a messed up week. Um, Oh, I should say, brought to you by The Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Go to thedispatch.com. We really knocked that out of the park this week. Did some wonderful stuff. It chagrins me a little bit that I think probably our best week was when I was mostly MIA. Um, but I'm so proud of our team and our guys. And we did such a uh, great job covering all of this. And, um, you know, I worked on the editorial, our first editorial, calling to impeach and all of that. Um, I'm not going to mention our sponsors today because we have this new format for it. So I know some people really love my segues. And I'm going to try and figure out some alternative way of that kind of thing. But for the time being, let me just say thank you to our sponsors. Um, So, yeah, why don't we start there with this crazy week? Um, I'll just be upfront about it. I think it would be the best thing possible for America would be if we could impeach and remove Donald Trump. Um, I think I had a little spat with Brit Hume about this on Twitter. Yes, I think it's very unlikely that it'll happen. Yes, I think it would be very difficult. Yes, I think the Democrats, um, who very well may impeach him again, um, from what I'm hearing, uh, but it's very possible that they'll screw it up in such a way that Republicans won't sign on to it and it'll become more of a mess, and that's entirely possible. Also, I should say, um, and I'm recording this late on Friday, You know, there's this whole story about how Nancy Pelosi talked to the Pentagon about Trump and the nuclear codes and all of this stuff. And I think that this is a terrible, terrible storyline and that Pelosi has made uh, just a really terrible partisan-driven mistake here. Because first of all, if this was something that you really, really cared about, you would not go public with this information. You would not leak it. Um, You would not tell the world about this disarray in the chain of command with the nuclear codes you would just make sure that you know the issue was handled and you could talk about it later this sends a very bad message i think around the world moreover look i think my record of being critical of donald trump is secure um but i do not think there's a very high probability (laughs) that donald trump is looking to launch a nuclear weapon um and uh, the idea that that this is something that we should be gravely concerned about, or that the military would go along with in the last 10, 12 days of his presidency, I think is just um it's sort of a variation of resistance porn. In fact, I don't think that there's a lot that the president can't well, I think there's a lot he could do that would be even worse than what happened Wednesday. But I don't think it's very likely that he would, that he would do or will do very much for the last few days of his presidency the reason why i'm in favor of impeaching and removing donald trump is not primarily to prevent him from doing more damage while president um primary reason why i want to see him impeached and removed is that first of all on the merits i think he deserves to be i thought you know i thought it was a tougher call with the impeachment phone call but i was in favor of impeachment back then too um, but I don't begrudge, uh, you know, people who thought that what he did was very bad, but it didn't rise to the level of necessarily of impeachment. Um, but what he did here, I think definitely rises to the level of impeachment. And, but more importantly, I, um, I, I think we need it for basically civic hygiene purposes. I think it is really important for the future of the country that you send a signal into the system f- for the rest of our this country's life that doing what he did is going to have severe consequences and you know Donald Trump is shameless and uh presumably future demagogues would be shameless too um they just might be better at doing the kind of stuff that Trump tried to do and having the country speak with an official voice to say that this is unacceptable, I think is just, would be the best case scenario going forward. Also, it would remove for all time the possibility if they voted the right way, there's some technical stuff, um, to bar him from future public office. Just take the question of whether he's going to run again off the table. You know, it's funny. One of the reasons why um, FDR... Uh, ushered in the two limit terms to the presidency was that for a lot of Republicans, people thought, and I—we don't need to go chapter and verse into all of this—but they thought that FDR basically ruled like an autocrat. I generally agree with them. Uh, that doesn't mean that you know, FDR. FDR is not the evil figure in my mind that uh, Woodrow Wilson was, uh, but. The way, they, the way they did it, the way they sold it to people, if, if I remember this right, is that for Democrats, many of whom didn't like that he basically made himself president for life either, but they weren't going to say it, the, the Democrats sold it as no other president will deserve this honor of being, of exceeding two terms. And for Republicans, it was no other president will be able to do what FDR did by just basically making himself president for life. But it's worth pointing out, you know, that was a, you know, what what FDR did was a major violation of of norms. The the, the tradition of only two terms was rock solid um, until FDR became president and he just didn't want to relinquish power. Now, it is entirely possible to me that somebody with that same uh, desire and impulse down the road could look at what Donald Trump tried to do here and figure out a better way of pulling it off. Um, and sending a signal for all time that this is intolerable behavior, uh, just strikes me as the right thing to do secondarily or tertiarily to all of that. I think it would be great for the Republican party. I mean, look, I mean, everyone understands where I'm coming from on Trump. I think he's been bad for the country. He's been bad for the party. Um, he's been bad for American culture. And I write about that at length in the G file today. Um, and I think the sooner the party can, uh, expel the cult of personality that, that he has inflicted upon the party, the better. And forcing Republicans to take a stand on all of this would be helpful. It would be helpful to know th- about those who approved of his behavior inciting this riot. And it would be uh, helpful for those who don't approve it to actually prove it and be on the record and lay down that marker, um, and. And it also just, it would be helpful to have Donald Trump weakened as a political actor by the fact that he can't run again. Um, I think this week hurt his chances demonstrably about running again. And if, as some of the rumors are true, that that he decides to uh, pardon himself, I think that would hurt even more. I also think pardoning yourself is an impeachable offense, by the way. And, um... Uh, and I, anyway, so like, you know, I got into this spat with Brit about it and Brit thinks that it just can't be done since it can't be done. We should stop talking about it. I get the point. I mean, I like Brit and I have my real disagreements with him sometimes, but, um, I think the Congress could certainly do it if it wanted to. It doesn't have to hold hearings. Congress can set the rules for whatever it wants. Um, when it comes to impeachment, except for the stuff that's specifically laid out in the constitution and Let's put it this way. If, if Donald Trump this week, instead of inciting a riot, um, said on national television that, um, he thinks, I don't know, um, that it will forget what just said something. That's a different argument. Let's say that he murdered somebody just for the sake of argument, right? Not that he has blood on his hands because of the, the riot stuff, though. I think he does, but that's a figurative thing um let's say he like legit murdered somebody um, regardless of the criminal penalties stuff and the questions about whether or not the president can be prosecuted for a crime while he's still in office it seems kind of obvious to me that the house could convene with a day's notice vote up, up and down on articles of impeachment and send them to the senate and the senate could in a, with a day's notice vote it out if they if he murdered let's say he murdered he went, he, he fulfilled his prophecy and went out on Fifth Avenue and just shot a bunch of people, uh, take away all the funny, political, legal, illegal, you know, fanfic arguments about, you know, New York state arresting him and blah, 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 blah. Let's just say that he did it. Um, I think everybody agrees that would be impeachable. Uh, and I don't know, I think he would get impeached even if he had 48 hours left to his presidency. Um, so it's possible you have the political will to do it, but as a practical matter, I think, you know, between the calendar and the, the dysfunction of the GOP and the um, the politics of the Democrats, it's very unlikely that it will come about, but it, it could be done. There was also this really strange argument that, um, what is it, Josh Blackman, Blackman, um, guy writing for Reason, said that the president couldn't be impeached for Um, utilizing his free speech rights under the first amendment. And it's an interesting sort of argument, but at the end of the day, I find it to be just a total head scratcher. Uh, You know, first of all, something doesn't have to be a crime to be impeachable. Um, And in, in fact, James Madison conceded when they were debating the pardon power that, you know, if you used your pardon power to uh, pardon people to commit crimes for you on your behalf, or if you pardoned yourself so you could commit crimes, um, that's fully within the president's rights, and it could, he could still be impeached for it. If the president of the United States, you know, exercised his right of free expression and entered the Oval Office buck naked and started shouting racial epithets and insulting uh, Christians as suckers for having put so much faith in him. Uh, and doing all that kind of stuff, you know, he, he might get hit with the 25th amendment before anyone could impeach him, but, uh, that would all be free expression. And my hunch is, is that uh, politicians would race for the opportunity to impeach him so that they could be on record, not condoning any of that kind of stuff. Um, so I just, it, it, to me, it's, it's, it's fairly cut and dried in the sense that what he did was inexcusable and, uh, It would be better for civic health and it'd be a good precedent for the future if the country spoke through its relevant institutions to simply reject the whole thing. Now, let's talk for a second, I guess, about what Trump actually did. Um, I, as you'll see in the G-file, and I don't want to really dwell on it too much here, I am really disgusted, not just with Trump's behavior, but with the mad rush to uh change the subject or ch- or reframe the debate um into more uh hospitable ground for the usual uh trump supporting pundits and politicians uh to claim the high ground right and so that's part of what's going on with all of this nonsense about uh saying that democrats are hypocrites because or the media are hypocrites because they didn't condemn the violence of the black lives matter protesters. Yeah, they are definitely hypocrites. You know, Chris Cuomo beclowned himself when he was like, he was like, where in the constitution does it say that protests have to be peaceful? And that ramen noodle eating guy pointed out it's actually in the constitution to peaceably, peaceably as- assemble. Um, uh, much like the epidemiologists who said mass gatherings are terrible unless you're violent, unless you're protesting racial injustice, and then they're fine. It is perfectly legitimate to attack um, and criticize Democrats for being inconsistency uh, inconsistent on, uh, uh, on the issue of, of political or mob violence. I have no problem with that. And I agree with a lot of that. What bothers me about all of that is that by turning that into the thing to be righteously indignant about, and slam the table and and talk about how you know morally inferior the Democrats are, is that unless in the same breath and with at least equal passion, you condemn the president of the United States for inciting a mob to to uh, march on the Capitol, knowing full well that it could lead to violence. In fact, there was all sorts of warnings that there was going to be violence or that there could be violence, and um and being reluctant to call an end to it when, you know, among other things, a police officer was beaten to death with a fire extinguisher. And, you know, this idea that the Democrats are the inconsistent ones on violence is is garbage when you're saying that to defend a president who has been at least as inconsistent about violence. You know, he did those, those rallies where he would talk about, you know, people getting roughed up and punched in the face. He celebrated that jackwad politician who, um, beat up or body slammed a reporter. Uh, he liked to talk about how he has the the bikers and all the tough guys on his side. And he told this big crowd that he knew was full of proud boys and grapers, And, you know, uh, what was the thing from blazing saddles when slim Pickens talks about we'll we'll call a, a old number seven, I think it is. Where uh, we go you know riding into town whooping and whopping eating holly raping the cattle and uh, and killing the women um, he knew that the whole list of, of seedy characters uh, that he you know encourages to think he's their dashboard saint he knew they were all there he invited them there for a wild time and then he talks about how we have to be strength. You know, we have to be strong. We have to show strength. And yeah, I know he said that, you know, he used the word peacefully march. I get that. But, you know, he also spoke after Rudy Giuliani called for trial by combat. And um, and also, he was riling these people up, filling their heads with all number of just wildly, you know, wildly unsubstantiated Lies and conspiracy theories about how the election was stolen, repeating things that have been debunked over and over and over again, telling these people, many of whom obviously sincerely believe that the election was stolen, and then saying, go down there and put pressure on Mike Pence to steal the election for me. So even if even if those rioters were never violent, right? Even if that crowd was never violent, what he was trying to do was still impeachable and outrageous. And the fact that it got out of hand and it was foreseeable that it would get out of hand just makes it so much worse. And if the reports are true that he couldn't understand why he should call for the National Guard to come in and put an end to it, or why he should um, uh, speak out sooner to tell people to stop it, that j- it just goes to you know his state of mind that he, he kind of was into this. And um, so, anyway, I think. That was all horrific and detestable, and anything that the Black Lives Matter movement did this summer does not detract at all from the constitutional crime that Donald Trump committed this week. And I don't, you know, it's it's been this theme for four years of the Trump presidency, where his biggest defenders will immediately play this hypocrisy card as if it's a defense of the president. Um, you know, it's as if, you know, that that because the New York Times said something bad, then therefore it's okay that the commander-in-chief of the United States who's sworn to uphold the Constitution does something bad. And it's, you know, it's this inverted, perverse Alinskyism stuff that I've been railing about for so long where you think that because you believe the worst caricature of what the other side does that makes it okay to do the same things um, because you're right and they're wrong. And, you know, inciting riots is wrong whatever the cause is. You know, that maybe, not, maybe not whatever the cause is. If you're in, you know, uh, North Korea, inciting a riot might make sense. If you're in the old Soviet Union, inciting a riot might be the morally right thing to do. Um, I certainly can't begrudge uh, African slaves from revolting, um, from, you know, while in bondage or anything like that. But in a nation with the, with the rule of law that is trying to conduct, um, the, the, the ceremonial procedures of the transfer of power to unleash mob violence or just unleash crowds to pressure politicians to do something that is unconstitutional should be impeachable. Um, You know, I've been making this point for a really long time, but, you know, I'm not going to get into the whole weakness of parties thing, but, you know, and I'm sure you've heard me say this a bunch of times, but, you know, one of the problems that you have with um, everything being transparent and in the open is that it makes it much more difficult for institutions to play their function as gatekeepers and filters and legitimizers And the example I know I've used on this podcast a bunch of times is, you know, under the old smoke-filled room system before the primaries, if you uh, went to the governor of Pennsylvania who controlled the delegates for the state of Pennsylvania and said, look, I want your endorsement. um, And he says, "Okay, well, you know, what are you for? And you said, well, I'm for building this crazy wall and and we're going to take the oil and we're going to make Mexico pay for this and we're going to do that and we're going to. Ban all Muslims, including American citizens, from the United States. The governor of Pennsylvania would say, "Get the hell out of here." And the same thing applies, as I always say. You know, if it had been Bernie Sanders in twenty sixteen, if he went in and said, "We're going to seize the means of production and take control of the radio stations and, um, you know, get rid of capitalism," a Democratic governor of Pennsylvania would say, "Get the hell out of here." But in an age of populism where you can rile up crowds, which until this week, my argument was mostly metaphorical. Um, if you could rile up crowds to put external pressure on institutions to make them bend to your will, um, then you exploit this weakness in the system that makes the gatekeepers in these institutions uh, not necessarily powerless, but much less capable of defying popular will. It's the, you know, waving the bloody toga over Caesar's death in front of the crowd. You rile them up and you unleash them. And again, up until this week, it was largely figurative. I was talking about, you know, getting Fox News viewers or or primary voters mad um, or Rush Limbaugh listeners mad. But this this is different. This was literally telling a huge crowd of people and millions of people watching on TV that the election was stolen when it wasn't, lying about the evidence that the election was stolen, and then putting these people in the position who, you know, sincerely believe that the election was stolen and that they needed to prevent a coup. And then you add in the hotheads and the rabble rousers and the crazies who are there to enrage and inflame the mob. Um, This is much more like Roman politics than it is like American democracy, you know, and that gets to this other point I'm making in the G file. Yeah, I, I, I get that there are lots of people out there who sadly believe the election actually was stolen. I know people who actually believe all of this garbage. Um, I have relatives who believe all of this garbage. Um, they've been lied to. It's as simple as that. They've simply been lied to. And so you have Matt Gates, who, you know, looks like a steroidal Playmobil character who is a symbol of everything i hate about what politics has become these days going around saying or insinuating or hinting or winking you know that somehow this was what you deserve because people are calling people who are trying to act on what the trump what trump is telling them secessionists and insurrectionists and that's mean and that hurts their feelings and that's demonizing and offensive and so you get, and Tucker does the same shtick, uh, you know, you tell people that the election, you lie to people and tell them that the election was stolen and they act on it. And then when other people call the people who were acting on these lies, liars and conspiracy theorists, well, that's outrageous. And how dare you insult them? And Tucker would have a perfectly fine point if he spent a fraction of his energy actually explaining to his own viewers that the election wasn't stolen. You can't like, you know, play this game where you say, look, the American people, you know, look, a lot of these people are sincere in their belief that the election was stolen and calling them conspiracy theorists or insurrectionists doesn't fix the problem. You have to persuade them. This is almost a verbatim, you know, line from Tucker from the other night, from the night of this, this riot. Um, and he says, you know, you can't go around, you know, going around calling them these things is, is undemocratic because all it does is tell them that you have contempt for them. Well, it seems to me the real contempt for them is not showing them the respect of actually explaining to them in plain language why the president has been lying to them. Refusing to rebut the lie is aiding and abetting the lie. And look, for all I know, Tucker has said something exculpatory on this front, but Writ large, you know all of these people, all the usual suspects, are talking about Trump voters, first of all, they talk about you know the seventy five million Trump voters as if they are of one mind about all this stuff, which is just nonsense. But they're also saying that you know you, you can't hurt their delicate little sensibilities by telling them the truth because this is just what they believe, and first of all, this is the exact argument that conservatives have spent 40 years railing about, about political correctness. About, you know, oh, look at these little snowflakes who, you know, they can't hear the truth and they need trigger warnings because they can't have their safe spaces, you know, uh, violated by hearing unpleasant ideas or arguments. Well, the vast swath of this right wing media complex that went along with this stuff, and, and not just the media, Ted Cruz and Josh Hawley in particular, they are treating Trump voters and Republicans generally as if they're snowflakes who can't hear the truth that this is all a bunch of BS. And yeah, I I, I get Ted will always have an ability to come up with some loyally explanation about he himself wasn't actually saying the election was stolen. He was just saying, as, as Josh Hawley did, you know, there's just so many allegations that we owe it to people to take this seriously. Well, the allegations were raised as a concerted effort to steal the election and lie to the American people. And then saying, well, now that because they believe all the lies, we have to take them seriously and act on it in unconstitutional ways because our snowflake fans who give us small dollar contributions can't hear the truth. That's just making the problem worse. And it's grotesque to me. It's just utterly grotesque. And I'm not saying, look, I mean, if you actually believe The election was stolen. I kind of get the desire to to riot and protest and all these kinds of things. I still don't think it um is any excuse for the violence that we saw. It is no justification. Um, you know, as I say in the G-File, there's a one of the core ideas in conservatism is to understand the difference between an explanation and an excuse. We can talk about root causes stuff all day long, if you want, about you know, um, the minority communities or whatever. And, and, you know, and historic oppression and discrimination and how that leads to results today that make crime more likely and all these kinds of things. And there are good arguments in the root causes side. Um, But one of the bedrock positions of conservatism is that those root causes do not justify violence. They do not justify crime. And I've been listening to Pete Hegseth and all these people talking about how you have to understand their feelings. They feel like they have no voice. They feel like they've been unheard. This is the voices of the unheard. Well, first first of all, that's, as I wrote my syndicated column about this, that's just garbage. It's just, what are these people talking about? You know, I mean, the, the, the idea that these 75 million people aren't heard, like the entire Fox viewing audience isn't has as no one speaking for them that Josh Hawley and 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 Ted Cruz aren't you know uh, acting on their behalf and speaking on their behalf you know the way you make yourself heard in a democracy is by voting 75 million people voted for Donald Trump or against Joe Biden they were heard but something like 85 million people voted for Joe Biden or against Donald Trump and In a democracy, that's kind of how it works, you know. Um, Yeah, and I'm in favor of the electoral college. Unlike Hawley and Cruz and the Texas lawsuit people and all of them who wanted to just sort of just blow up the system on behalf of Donald Trump. But you know, as a general proposition, the side that wins the election wins, and their voices get heard more, and their representatives get to go to Washington and do their stuff, and then the other side gets to argue with them and fight with them and and um and all of that but this idea where like the single highest rated television show on cable news is Tucker Carlson's and all he does is tell the audience you know the stuff that they want to hear um which is that they're that no one is listening to them uh you know you have vast swaths of the media industrial complex that caters entirely to this very sizable part of America and The thing is, is that this too is a snowflakey argument. This too is very much like the campus lefty arguments that say, look, we don't want to debate. We don't want to be told we're wrong. We want all of our feelings affirmed and ratified and respected and protected from unpleasant argument and debate. And it's just astounding to me how, how almost totally the the right, you know, they don't, they don't quote Herbert Marcuse and they don't talk about the Frankfurt school and, um, uh, except to talk about why the other side is bad, but they don't invoke all of the intellectual gas baggery of the sort of postmodern left to justify their positions, but their positions at the end of the day are remarkably similar to the positions of the people that they claim are all a bunch of snowflakes. You know, I mean, we're the guys who've been saying all this time, facts don't care about your feelings. And yet the argument that they're all putting, that Gates and all these people are putting forward is that the feelings of these voters, you know, this very unsilent majority, um, which isn't the majority, the silent majority, which is neither silent nor a majority, um, that because they feel distant, because mean people say things about him, about them. Or about Donald Trump, their you know the the vessel of their populist uh, identity uh, that that therefore justifies anything that they do. Well, you know, people say lots of bad things about black people in this country. That doesn't justify violence. People do a lot of bad things to black people in this country. That doesn't justify violence. But because Hillary Clinton called Donald Trump fans or a big segment of them deplorable people that justifies being jackasses and trying to throw out the Constitution? It's just all such nonsense. And it's also, it really is very postmodern, right? I mean, um, the whole, you know, 1990s postmodern thing was about, you know, the social construction of reality and that you have to respect the, you know, we don't have to respect the existing social constructs. We can replace them with other social constructs and they're just as true. And no one has any right to say my claims to facts are any more correct than somebody else's claims to facts are correct, and that truth is in the eye of the beholder. Well, you know, we now have vast swaths of the right talking about their truths, their facts. And when you try to debate them on it, they either say you're making it up or that, oh, that comes from the mainstream media. You have to go to Fortran. You know, Joe's com to get the real truth. Um uh and it's, it's madness. And um, Tim Carney had a great piece today uh, we'll put it in the show notes where he makes the point and I think he's entirely correct that at least for a lot of the people who sincerely believe all of these conspiracy theories, this is, you know, this is as much the result of the uh, de-christianization or the secularization of American life as any of the nonsense that we hear from the left. People are craving something to believe in. People are craving for some cause that gives them meaning. What, uh, you know, Ernest Gellner, uh, this, this philosopher of history who I really, really like, um, uh, he would call it reenchantment creeds, right? There's this argument, I think I talked about this recently, or um, there's a historian, Michael Burley, who's done really amazing work on all of this stuff, about how the wars of religion never really ended. They just changed their names. And, um, you know, and this is something that Eric Vogelin talked about a great deal, um, where he talked about how, you know, that because we are, um, inherently spiritual and religious by nature, what Will Herberg called, um, homo religio, right, religious man, um, that when you get rid of or remove the traditional uh, religious structures and institutions and creeds and beliefs, we don't necessarily all become uh, atheists or secularists or rationalists or pragmatists or anything like that. We find something to replace the old creeds with. And, you know, Vergelin has this line. He says, when God is invisible behind the world, the contents of the world will become new gods. When the symbols of transcendent religiosity are banned, new symbols develop from the worldly language of science to take their place. And I've, re- I've quoted that a million times. It's in my underrated book, Tyranny of Clichés. And I think it is absolutely true for a subset of sort of secular progressives where the sort of, uh, uh, what's his face? Um, uh, m- Neil, uh, Tyson, is that his name? Whatever. You know, the, the, the guy who loves to debunk, um, the science and movies where he isn't a paid consultant to, uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson, that's it. Right. Um, there is this segment of, of the sort of progressive secular left going way back. I mean, going back to August Compton, his religion of humanity, where he wanted to make, you know, scientists and, and explorers and inventors into the new saints uh, that has been a big trend in, um, in post-religious, secular, whatever you want to call it, progressivism for over a century. And I think it's very much alive today. I think a lot of, and this is not exactly a new insight, but, you know, uh, I think climate change is real. I don't think it's as as big a problem as, as a lot of people claim, but I think it's something that we should take seriously. Um, but as Michael Crichton pointed out a long time ago, uh, it very much fits with sort of classic religious and biblical, um, understandings of, of the world. You know, originally we were in a sinless, pristine world, and then through knowledge, um, and technology, uh, sort of basically like the, uh, you know, the, the apple that Eve, um, pawns off on Adam, uh, we became fallen and sinful and we destroyed Eden. And, um, and then we have to have, uh, redemption by, you know, restoring the world to its, you know, this romantic vision of what it once was. This is, Al Gore talks about this a lot in Earth and the Balance with his, you know, his weird diatribes against Frank, uh, Francis Bacon and how he, um, bifurcated the Western mind and, um. Uh, and made us all technocrats or some drivel. It's been a long time since I read Earth and the Balance. Um, so I think all of that is real, and it's something I wish we could get back to talking about and writing about. But I think I think Tim makes a very strong point that um, it doesn't have to be a new scientific religion that takes the place of traditional religion. It can be... Um, Cult of personality stuff. It can be conspiracy theories. It can be all sorts of things that that we cram in there to fill the holes in our souls. And uh, you know, in Tim's book, which is really a great book, Alienated America, you know, he he notes that that Trump's biggest source of support was um, evangelicals, self-described evangelicals who do not go to church, um, which is a hugely important distinction. If you come from a background where you have other, and I, I know I'm a broken record on this. So this is a big theme of, of suicide of the West. But if you come from a background where you have other sources of meaning cl- and community closer to home, you don't have to fill your soul with politics um, in order to uh, find your meaning, right? This is, you know, I used to love making this point about the life of Julia stuff and Barack Obama's second inaugural. Where he would talk, you know, he talked about how the government was the only other institution other than the atomized individual, and if you wanted community, you needed to um, look to the federal government for it. I've been I hectored my wife for years to write um, a book called My Husband, the State, because that was sort of the uh, and I was telling her to do that long before the Life of Julia stuff came along. But that that that's a big argument within. Our big sort of theme within progressivism is that the state is there to do all of the things that you can't do as an individual. Um, and it leaves out all of the civil society, all of the mediating institutions, all of the Berkey and Little Platoons, um, and says, you know, there's the individual who and the state will free you from all encumbrances to operationalizing and actionizing, actualizing your personal identity. And then there's the federal state that will do all the other stuff, and that's where that phrase, you know, government is just the just the word we use for the things we do together. Um, I hate that stuff, but there is this right wing version of this, which is um, much less theoretical, much less um, uh, adorned with ideological and 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 uh, intellectual arguments and, and, and accoutrements. And, and it just basically says, Trump's my guy, right? I mean, this is, you know, for Ernest Gellner, the guy who was, I was talking about re-en- uh, re-enchantment creeds, um, his uh, big example of that was basically nationalism. Uh, Vagelin's big example of political religions, which substituted, self-consciously substituted for traditional religion, were Nazism and, and Soviet communism um but you know faith in the big man faith in the strong man faith in the um unquestionable leader that is a much older idea than all of these other weird reenchantment creeds it's a much more natural idea and um and i think that you know there's this tendency on the right to think that all of the problems in america are um outside conservative communities, that the, that conservatism is the answer to all of the problems that plague America. Now, I actually believe that my definition of conservatism goes a long way to solving a lot of the problems in America, but not all of them. I'm not, I'm not that arrogant about it. Um, but my point, my, that's not my point about, it's not about public policy. It's that, you know, uh, the glorification of the self and, moral relativism and, uh, hedonism and all of these, these plagues that, uh, mess up modern society that conservatives are so good at describing and talking about, um, we very rarely say that these are problems for conservatives too. I mean, that's, that's been changing. You know, Brad Wilcox talks about the problems of marriage. You know, there are a lot, you know, there are people who get at this stuff and Tim got at it in his book. But as a general, you know, for example, when we used to talk about out-of-wedlock birth, um, a lot of conservatives talk about out-of-wedlock birth as if that was problems for those other people and not us. Well, you know, premarital sex, out-of-wedlock birth, uh, family breakdown, selfishness, greed, uh, um, hyper-individualism, antisocial behavior, all of these things are problems among people who vote Republican, too. And for some of them, by no means all of them or even most of them, but for some of them, the reason why they're voting Republican is because they are searching for the things that are missing in their lives. And I spent much of the last 20 years making this exact point in all three of my books um, about progressives and liberals, right? That, you know, I I think that uh, Mary Eberstadt and others. They're absolutely right that identity politics, a big driver of it is family breakdown, the loss of community, and the need to attach yourself to something larger than yourself. Um, These needs exist in all human beings. It's what Robert Nisbet called the quest for community. And um, I spent a lot of time pointing out how these were real problems for um, those other people. And I didn't spend enough time thinking about how, no, these are just problems for Americans. Um, and I think that's true of a lot of conservatives. And so, you know, and, and, we're not, and we're not just talking about poor people or people with low amounts of social capital. I think you're going to find these kinds of problems more with, with people who don't have resources. Um, but look, I mean, there was this idiot woman, they write about her in the, in the New York Post today, who flew a private jet, And then started tweeting about how she stormed the Capitol and it was the best, one of the best days of her life and all of these kinds of things. There are lots of people who are money rich, but spiritually poor, who are looking for sustenance and meaning in their lives. And it just, it's so sad and pathetic to me that so many of them have found it in Donald Trump. I've, you know, and I I don't mean that these are bad people, but I mean, I, I live my life arguing and talking about politics and writing about politics and thinking about politics. But I got to tell you, I've never really put that much of myself in politics. I don't get my sense of meaning from it. And and I think that as, you know, churches and organized religion and and stable communities recede from our lives and stop giving us sources of meaning, we are seeing the same trends on the left and the right where people are just looking for whatever they can find to fill up um, that desire. And I think, you know, the large, centralized, bureaucratic, uh, progressive welfare state is a big part of that problem, but it's not the only driver of that problem, because this is a malady that runs across the ideological spectrum, or certainly across the partisan spectrum. And it's just, I think, something that's that's, that's really important to think about. Okay, um, what else is there to... Um, Talk about oh, you know, you know, it's amazing to me. Um, it's it's amazing to me, okay, but it's 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 bizarre that uh, you know Trump cost the Republicans the Georgia runoff races. Um, there was this guy who ran for the public service commission in Georgia, and I I I, I got to do a deeper dive on this. But some 82-year-old Republican um, who outperformed both senators, um, both Republican candidates in Georgia, um, and won, and won sizably. And so the thing is, the reason why this is relevant is that presumably the people willing to vote Republican on that down-ballot race should normally be considered willing to vote Republican on the two Senate races. But Trump basically created a wedge issue that divided his own constituency, his own, his own party, and united the other side. And so, uh, you know, I don't know if, if Trump is, I mean, look, I think Kelly Loeffler is a terrible candidate. And while I'm in favor of all these people doing the right thing eventually, the, the fact that she dropped her objections to the election only after she lost, um, I do not think speaks particularly well of her. Uh, she was It just shows that she was perfectly happy to play along with that stuff. And as reporting seems to indicate, Trump forced her to say that she would um, oppose the electors um, in the Senate um, it, it, in order for Trump to come and do uh, the rally that he did in Georgia. And so she agreed to do it. Um, and so it basically Trump forced her to alienate suburban voters who didn't like all of this garbage. And uh, anyway, so Trump cost those two Senate seats, gave them to Republicans. And one of the weird um, silver linings, for want of a better term, for Donald Trump about all of this is that he completely took the conversation away from that. And put it on what happened here in Washington on Wednesday, so that he is actually not getting as much blame as he should for handing the Democratic Party the Senate, and um, and I just I, I, I this is, gets back to the impeachment thing. It seems to me that you know again I don't think he should be impeached because I care so much about the frickin Republican Party at this point, but I do want the Republican Party to be a healthy, serious party. Um, and, and I also want the democratic party to be a healthy, serious party. And I think both of them have real problems, but the Republican party's problems are worse. And so just talking to Republicans about their own narrow partisan self-interest, um, there is no reason to believe that, uh, if Trump ran again, or if Trump pretends to run again for the next four years that he won't cause these kinds of problems over and over and over again. You know, Don Jr., um, in his sort of, you know, uh, kind of cocaine sheen rant at the, at the undercard part of that rally was talking about how he's gonna go in everyone's backyard who doesn't support the president in his effort to um, unconstitutionally steal the election. Well, that may still happen too. And so I just think, you know, purging the GOP of these problems which is of this problem, which is Donald Trump is good for the Republican party in its own narrow self-interest and explaining that, you know, to the, to, to people who actually claim to care about the Republican party would be very useful, but also would, you know, do go a long way to bringing back the suburban voters who have fled the Republican party in large part, you know, because of this thing I was talking about earlier, about how the, because they have other sources of meaning and do not invest themselves in politics the way that uh, the sort of, the new members of the Trump coalition do, the diehard Trumpists, um, who were never really voting for Republicans. They were voting for Trump wins. They were voting to to expand the glory, the greater glory of Donald Trump. well by definition, Those kinds of voters are less reliable than just sort of bread-and-butter, reliable suburban voters who turn out at elections. And I very much want both parties to be bourgeois parties. I want people who have bourgeois values to be the decisive voters in elections. The people who care about good schools, the people who care about safe streets, the people who care about um, uh, low taxes, and who care about living within our means, those are the kind of voters, whether they're pro-choice or pro-life, um, whether they're, you know, pro-gun or anti-gun. I mean, I care about those issues too, but I still want those kinds of voters to be the decisive voters in American politics. I don't want Occupy Wall Street yachts um, being the decisive voters in American politics, and nor do I want voters who wear freaking Viking helmets and spread their own on the walls of Congress and beat, um, you know, police officers to death to be decisive voters. And I don't think they are because the QAnon crowd is a very small sliver, but I also don't want the people who think it's fine to have them in the Republican coalition to be the decisive voters. And there are a lot more of them. The idea that somehow you can have a party that includes, I mean, I, I made this, I had this argument with Hugh Hewitt four years ago about the alt right. And to Hugh's credit, I think I changed his mind about it because I think he was misusing and misunderstanding what the alt right's about. But it's an existential, fundamental philosophical thing. I will not be in a party that considers the alt right to be members in good standing of the party. And similarly, the GOP should not be tolerant of members of QAnon or other conspiracy theorists, and frankly, of people. Who knowingly advocate for um, violating the Constitution in order to be on the right side of a cult of personality. And I want stable, boring voters to be the, 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 the kingmakers in our politics, the people who turn out because it's civic duty and then they go on about their lives. I don't want radicals of the right or the left. I don't want people who think they are voting because of some re enchantment creed or because. Um, that we're going to be delivered to some sunny new utopia defined in right-wing terms or in left-wing terms, deciding these things. I want boring people to decide these things. You know, like I talk about with Kevin Williamson all the time, you know, I I want, I want to be more Swiss, you know, where you have these polls that show a lot of Swiss people don't know the name of the president of the United States. That's the kind of country I want to live in. I don't want to live in a kind of country where All of your meaning and identity is wrapped up in the the chief bureaucrat of one branch of the federal government. And uh, that's the way we've been heading for a very long time. That's what people felt about it. For every election since George W. Bush is they invest way too much in uh, the cult of the presidency and they treat the presidency as this culture war thing. And yes I def- as a conservative I definitely blame the expansion of the scope of government into our lives as one of the re- main reasons why people are investing so much importance in politics but that still doesn't mean that I want to have cult of personality politics on the right either because no president is going to deliver the things that people are expecting a president to deliver and if you invest all of your meaning in your identity and um in in a single politician, you're gonna get disappointed and you're gonna do incredible damage to the country in the process. All right, I'm done ranting about all that. I'll stop. I do want to talk a little bit about a personal note. Um I know I mentioned this briefly in the intro to the podcast the other day, um, the one with Charles Murray, but um, and I mentioned it on Twitter. But um so uh, my brother's widow, Chantal, passed away um, early, uh, late in the night on the day before Christmas Eve. But I got the call first thing in the morning on Christmas Eve that Chantal had died. And um, Chantal was a beautiful, sweet souled person who suffered from the worst form of sickle cell anemia. Um, she was in terrible, terrible health for a long time. Um, and sickle cell is an evil, horrible disease that is excruciatingly painful. Um, and yet she never once um indulged, at least in front of me, um, or anybody I know talk about her in self-pity. Um she didn't treat herself like a victim. She handled it. She tried to be as good a person in life as she could be. And, um, you know, and one of the reasons I want to bring this up is that, uh, my Chantal's, uh, sister wanted to talk to me about creating some sort of foundation about sickle cell. Because one of the problems that people with sickle cell run into is, and, you know, and, you know people with sickle cell tend to be, um, of African descent, um, for complicated reasons, um, complicated biological reasons. It's it has to do with the, the sickle cell genes and, and all this stuff. But um, they tend to get treated, and if 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 you go to public hospitals and all that kind of thing, um, they tend to get treated like addicts who are just there for drug seeking behavior. And Chantal didn't drink. She was not a drug addict. She wasn't any of these kinds of things. She was just in debilitating pain and was often treated terribly by hospitals that um, just sort of wrote her off as um, playing a game to get meds. And if you know anything about the kind of pain that a sickle crisis can cause, it's really infuriating. And it's particularly infuriating when it's someone who is um, a member of your family. And so. Uh, you know, my brother's been dead for nine years and, um, the whole thing brought back a lot of that. Um, I've been for for the most part, taking care of Chantal cause she can't work all of this time. Uh, my mom has helped out for a big chunk of it, but now it, it falls on, it, it fell on me for the last few years. And, um, and it fell on me. There was a promise I made the day, um, or the week that Josh died, um, I promised her that I would that she would. Um, he's in a mausoleum thing, so it's not quite buried, right? But it's um, she's in a, he's in a crypt and next to my dad, and I promised that she would be next to him. So I bought the thing and I um, paid it off over the years. And she also wanted a Jewish funeral, so I had to arrange that, and I had to arrange all of it. Um, starting on Christmas Eve, um, and with a plan on going to be with my wife's side of the family in Hawaii, like the day after Christmas. And so that all got postponed and getting to Hawaii without re- very recent COVID tests is impossible. So I had, we had to arrange all that, ended up doing COVID tests in Denver and blah, blah. Anyway, I'm not here to talk about how inconvenienced I was in my Hawaii vacation, my sister-in-law's death but it brings back all sorts of obvious emotions and um um, and some other things i mean like i gotta say and i mean this in no offense to um non-jewish listeners out there but the one thing other than than uh than deli meats that the jews really have it on, on Christians or non-Jews is on, uh, the, the, the view that a funeral should not be an exercise in, um, impoverishing people, um, that it shouldn't be gaudy. It shouldn't be extravagant, um, uh, plain pine box, that kind of thing, which is entirely what Chantal wanted. and uh but when we were trying to figure out on the fly how to organize all of this you know how to do a zoom funeral and and everything else over basically christmas weekend um chantal's sister called um some funeral home, some catholic funeral homes and they were saying how the 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 most inexpensive casket was something like 1800 bucks and it went up to uh, $39,500. And I just think that's just a a terrible way of going about these things. Um, that's not to say I don't have complaints about some of the other, (laughs) other stuff, uh, in terms of, you know, where they get you and all of these things, but it's just going through this process again, which brought back all of these memories about my brother and my father, who, both of whose graves I saw, you know, what, 10 days ago. Um, it brings back sort of, I I guess, some of the stuff that I was talking about before about the real sources of meaning in people's lives. And the real source of meaning in your life has to start with family. And I understand that some people don't have great families. Um, And that doesn't mean that they can't create something like a family of their own um, or, or create, not something like, but create an actual family of their own um to deal with the fact that they didn't have one growing up but i really love my family and one of the things i'm most jealous of my wife about is that she has this huge family and um and it one of the things you get with having a huge family is you have um you've diversified the repositories Of institutional memory, Um, you just have more people who can keep people's memories alive. It's just a it's a it's a purely a numbers thing where you know the more people you have to remember stuff and to talk about stuff and play remember when and all of that, the more you keep the stuff um, alive in your heart, or the easier it is to keep it alive in your heart. And my wife she's had her share of deaths in her family as well. She lost a brother in the last year. She lost a sister a few years ago. She lost both of her parents in the last I guess 5 years. Um but there are 20 something grandkids. There're still um seven of the siblings of my wife's generation around and it's just a huge wellspring of, of memory and of, um, it's just a huge, you know, I I talk a lot on the podcast about, you know, social capital and all of these kinds of things. Well, the sort of most, the Fort Knox of social capital is this feeling of belonging to a family. And the more people you have, um the easier it is to sustain that and pass it on from gener- generation to generation. and um I remember when my brother died and the first G file I wrote after I took time off for all of that, um, I wrote about this a little bit, and um, you know, I made this point that you know, first of all, the word unique gets a bad rap in some ways or is misused sometimes. You know, people say, have the saying, you know, there's you can't be very unique. If something is unique, it's 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 a set of one, it's one of a kind, and all that kind of stuff. And um I get the point. It's a pedantic point, um uh or it's a grammarian's point or whatever, but it um it misses uh Something important, you know. Um, you know, they say all snowflakes. I don't mean the way I was talking about it before. I mean literal snowflakes. All snowflakes are um, unique; no two have the same shape, and that's right. But it just seems to me that if you had, you know, a black snowflake that was ten feet wide, you would could say that's a very unique snowflake, um, and that it's just different. And um, the reason I bring that up is that. Um, all families are unique, you know, and I'm not making the sort of all families are happy in the same way, blah, 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 all, none of that stuff. I mean, each one is its own little civilization, its own little culture. It's got its own shibboleths, its own internal language, its own shared memories, and um, people can be invited into it um, and become part of it as immigrants, um, but they, they, their experience, you know, it adds to the richness and the uniqueness of it. Um, but at the end of the day, there are the, 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 these small things that only a handful of people are in on. And when my brother died so young, um, I kind of felt like a huge chunk of the for one of a better analogy, sort of the, the oral history of my civilization had just been wiped out. You know, you hear these stories about how in the, um, in very, you know, it was like in, in Ukraine when the Soviets wiped out so much of the, the Orthodox church there, a lot of their institutional memory was passed along orally and wasn't necessarily written down. And so you're really committing a kind of cultural genocide when, you get rid of things like that. If you don't have the memory for it, you know, it's like people who still trying to keep like languages alive. Um, once the last person who actually speaks that language in a authentic way, the having grown up in it, that language, it can be brought back, but it's not going to be brought back the same. And, um, and so I, I wrote this, I just called it up. um, This is from the g file I wrote, what, like nine years ago. Um, Families are similarly, similarly unique. Each has its own cultural contours and configurations. Uniqueness might be hard to discern from the outside, and it certainly might seem trivial to the casual observer. But just as one platoon of Marines might look like another to a civilian, or one business might seem indistinguishable from the one next door, but as we all know, the reality is different. Each meaningful institution has a culture all its own. Each family has its inside jokes, its peculiar way of doing things, its habit and its mores develop around a specific shared experience. One of the things that keeps slugging me in the face is the fact that my cultural me- the cultural memory of our little family has been dealt a terrible blow. Sure, my mom's around, but sons have different memory. A family than parents and josh's recall for such things was always not only better than mine but different than mine as well i remembered things he'd forgotten and vice versa in what seems like the blink of an eye whole volumes of institu- institutional memory have simply vanished and that is a terrible lonely thought that no amount of company and condolence can ease or erase. I'm really sorry. If I'd known I wouldn't be able to keep it together, I wouldn't have recorded this at all. Um, But that's how I feel about Chantal going. She had memories of Josh that are now lost. Um, She had memories of me that I don't remember that are now lost. and they had no kids, so it's it's kind of like this tiny little bit of civilization is just cleaved off. And you know, as my people say, her memory is a blessing. But so my my larger point is, building up these memories, building up your own little civilizations is where the really important work of life is done and not all the stupid politics i'll see you next time